the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thank you, sir, and a pleasant good afternoon. Welcome to this Wednesday, October 25th edition of Lifeline. Well, you've made it to a hump day, as they call it, midpoint in the week, and trust you're having a good week so far. We've got a good show lined up for you tonight. A little bit later on, we're going to meet one of the heroes of the North Bay fires. Derek Webb joins us. He is the owner of the Triple S Ranch in Napa. And boy, talk about a harrowing story. He and a half a dozen people literally used shovels and a bulldozer and garden hoses to save their property. And, uh, you know, while sadly there aren't more good stories like this coming out of Napa, where the latest count now is 59, I'm sorry, 6,800 buildings between commercial and residential that were lost. Um, there's still a lot of good, encouraging stories to come out of Napa and the North Bay fires, and Derek Webb has one of them, so we'll talk with him a little bit later on in tonight's program. Much has been made of the Trump notion of making America great again, and of course a big part of that has been encouraging industry here at home, manufacturing here at home. And even though we're all about that, there's also a degree to which America is also strong economically because of our overseas ties. We go into many parts of the world to help bring about assistance and everything from oil exploration and drilling to um, mining, and that's precious metals, the whole gambit. But the big question is just how successful is all of that? How key is our overseas operations for multinational corporations uh, working in other countries? How successful has it been? Is there a difference between the support received by companies working overseas and providing jobs overseas between this administration and others? With some insights, we're joined by Seton Motley. Seton, of course, is president of LessGovernment.com. And Seton, always great to have you on the show. So what about this? In the process of making America great again, how are things looking overseas? Well, that's the, the reason I wrote this is because, look, I'm, I'm a pretty big Trump fan. I think his biggest mistake so far is that a great many additional people didn't leave D.C. when he arrived. Uh, there's too many holdovers from Barack Obama and before who are continuing the very terrible policies of the Obama administration. What, what's happened, if the, the piece I wrote about is, is, is in Guatemala. There's a $1 billion investment by a U.S. company in a silver mine down there. Well, they, of course, did this under the auspices of the Barack Obama administration. Barack Obama's ambassador to Guatemala not only didn't help facilitate things for our American company, they actually went and worked with the environmentalists in Guatemala and helped them file lawsuits against the mine. They then went and put pressure on the Guatemalan government to appoint 
radical judges to courts that would oversee the lawsuits that they were helping to encourage and foster. And so what happened was this company lost a lawsuit in June that, uh, or July, excuse me, July, that forced them to temporarily stop mining, completely stop their $1 billion investment uh, pursuit of silver. Uh, they, they filed an appeal, and the Guatemalan Supreme Court uh, basically waived the injunction and said, you can continue. And, and for, for, for reasons that escape me, I guess the word supreme doesn't translate directly from Spanish to English or English to Spanish, because there's a, there's a court higher than the Supreme Court in Guatemala. And so what the, what the Guatemalan Supreme Court said in, in September was, you can continue to mine while the Constitutional Court, which is the nation's highest court, waits and does its ruling, the final ruling, on whether or not this $1 billion mine can continue to move forward. Now, at that point, the environmentalists that are opposed to the mine that the Obama administration was helping, uh, now, of course, the administration's gone. The ambassador, as far as I know, is still there. We haven't, we, he's either not been, his replacement has either not been nominated or McConnell hasn't got, brought him up for a vote. But this guy, I mean, the, uh, the environmentalists are now blockading the mine so the miners can't get to the mine and, and do their jobs. And I, I, I mention this only in passing because I, I think it's the first time I've ever cited the United Nations positively. Uh, the, the UN Declaration of Human Rights, uh, I think Article 23 says, every human has the right to work where they want to work. So the environmentalists are actually violating the UN Charter of Human Rights with regard to these Guatemalan workers. Now, as you point out, a billion dollars in America invested is a lot of money. A billion dollars in Guatemala is a lot of money. And we have, we have a large gang problem in Guatemala that also becomes a gang problem here because, of course, we have more money here than they do there, and they like to come over here, engage in gang activities, and send, you know, enjoy the money here and send some of it back to Guatemala. If we're offering a billion dollars worth of investment, that's a lot of jobs. That people that people will take rather than I don't know joining gangs. So that's the that there's that angle that you meant that you uh, referenced. Well, and my understanding so is so they, they the the Supreme Court stepped in. They shut it down temporarily. They've now, at least from what I've read, um, have as as late as September uh, reinstated the license. Though right. understand that's not necessarily a permanent thing, in spite of the fact that they had been granted a 25 year license as recent as 2013. And I guess the big question is, environmental concerns aside, and I don't seem to read anything to suggest that this is a worry about the environment and much as maybe a little bit of local political infighting, um, isn't there potential serious threat to revenue in the region, not only in terms of loss of jobs for local workers, but uh, things like tax revenue and, and that oh, sort? All, look, all the, all the attending activity to any economic investment Oh, it, it, it's it's what Adam Smith, the uh, you know the the seventeenth century eighteenth century economist, called the invisible hand of capitalism, where all this money magically 
moves around and, and, and materializes all this attending economic activity. You know, just to give you an example, up in North Dakota with the fracking revolution, they're paying McDonald's workers 20 25 bucks an hour because they can't get anybody to work there because there's so much to do that the wages have gone up so high that a McDonald's counter job is a $25 an hour job up there. And, you're, and, and, and obviously it's not $25 an hour in Guatemala, but because of all that economic activity surrounding the mine, restaurants, you know, grocery stores, uh, rent, uh, you know, places to live, all of those things, when you stop the, the core, the engine of all of that activity, all the attending things wilt and die, too. So you're exactly right. Um, this is also a, a issue concerning uh, diplomats, the State Department. Um, yeah. There's obviously some, some risk here for both sides, both in terms of the investment, uh, although I understand this is principally a Canadian company, isn't it? Uh, it, it is, but it's got a, it's got a, it's got American interest as well. It's a multinational. Company. Okay, so the, so there, there's interest not only in Canada, and there's interest in the United States, and certainly there's big interest in Guatemala. It would seem to me that this is where the State Department steps in and says, "Hey, guys, let's let's come to some kind and of an agreement." And that's here. one of the reasons I wrote the piece. Look, first of all, think of how obnoxious it is. And by the way, this is not the only instance where the Obama administration actively attacked American businesses as they engaged in, in, in business overseas. This happened in another Central American country that I know because a, a, a good friend of mine who's Cuban, this was not in Cuba, of course, but she, she knew of, a, of another country in Central America where, the, where our diplomat was actively working against an American company invested in that country. Um, another example I, I work on is the Obama administration drafted the, the blueprint of a dumb lawsuit that then was handed to China and to South Korea to sue American company Qualcomm uh, overseas in China and South Korea. They've been working internationally to actively attack American business interests overseas. How pernicious is that? And, and, and as you said, we've got – I wrote this, this piece in part because I think – once, I think once it gets on Trump's radar, I've, I've actually seen this happen in other issues on, on, on which I've written. Once it gets on his radar, like, for example, the, the Qualcomm example, that's actually been folded into trade negotiations, not only with China, but with South Korea, as he talks about the bilateral re renegotiation of, of the South Korean trade deal. So I think once it gets on his radar, he goes, well, that's just stupid. And, and he, he, does, he makes the requisite changes, the necessary changes, to, to improve the situation. It's just obviously a very large government. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of moving parts. And he's obviously never, you know, he, <laughs> rarely has the presidency been an, en an entry-level position, but it is in this instance. And I think he's quickly getting his feet. And I just want to point out when, when, I, when I see something that's, that's in egregious need of, of attention, I uh, hopefully, with, in my humble little way, write about it and hopefully insert it into his jet stream. And he goes, oh, that we have to do something about that. Yeah, definitely so. Well, and, and indeed, you know, there's been long issues and concerns not only about the attitudes of government toward um, our ability to conduct business here at home, uh, but as well the notion of how well we support companies that are 
quite frankly, not only providing businesses to make things better for people overseas, but here at home as well. Seton Motley, president of LessGovernment.com. As always, Seton, we appreciate the time and the insights. 5.15, they tell me it's time for traffic. The clock says that, too. You're sitting in traffic. You're probably saying the same thing. So let's see what's going on out there as we check in with Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Hey, Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. This coming Saturday will be Remembrance Day in Santa Rosa. Sonoma County officials are organizing a community gathering at the Santa Rosa Junior College campus to honor those who died or lost their homes and businesses in the wildfires and certainly to show thanks and appreciation for so many of the first responders and other community heroes who responded to what is no doubt historically one of the most devastating wildfires um, certainly in, in the history of the state of California. The storm, of course, has created serious housing crises across parts of Napa and Sonoma County. In fact, all told, 6,800 total structures were destroyed countywide. That included some 2,900 homes alone in Santa Rosa. That's about 5% of the city's entire housing stock, which was already in short supply. We know what that's like, right? Many of the stories coming out of the days following the devastating fires were stories of amazing heroism, uh, people that really um, put their lives at risk in some cases to save property of theirs, of others, of neighbors. Um, It's an experience that hopefully Californians will never have to face again. And yet I think we can be tremendously encouraged that in spite of such tremendous loss, there are these little glimmers of hope here and there. One of them involves Triple S Ranch, located up in Napa. And if you've been that way, you might be able or might be familiar with this property located on Mountain Home Ranch Road there in Calistoga. Calistoga, as you recall, um, it was very near the Tubbs Fire, um, within a couple of miles, as I recall, and uh, for quite a while had been threatened by these fires. This is one of those stories where a brave handful of people literally brave the fires to save this property. Joining me now is the owner of Triple S Ranch in Napa, Derek Webb. Derek, thank you for taking time to be with us. And uh, I would imagine looking back on your experience, even a couple of weeks afterwards, still has to feel quite surreal. Yeah, Craig, it's, uh, I, I never know what day of the week it is. And um, time actually seems to, um, I don't know if it speeds up or slows down, but, uh, you know, that was a, a night certainly I'll never forget, and that was one thing. But then seeing the utter devastation around you is a whole other thing. So it's nice that you could save something, but then when you see what others have to face, it's um, very heartbreaking. There has to be mixed emotions. I, I mean, looking at the efforts that you guys put into fighting the firestorm and eventually saving the triple ranch and then once the storm the firestorm had passed to look around you and see so many of your neighbors in that area who did not survive there has to be kind of this sense of of what they call survivor's guilt that you're feeling derek yeah it's a a good way of saying it there's certainly that for sure and i think i think the other bigger one craig is that you know you realize in life that very thin margin between let's call it success and failure or um, you know one thing going one way and one thing going another and I remember uh, after that night we fought the fire for 10 hours and it was exhausting but 
that the when we knew we were out of danger, we could see all the houses around us burning, and we heard rumors of what was going on down the street, though there was nobody on the street. We drove down the next morning, and I just couldn't help but just uncontrollable tears, which had been going on for almost a week, because, you know, it, I realized looking at there's two other resorts on this road, and they are at zero, and I know how close we came to that, and it's just, you know, it's razor thin, and when you realize that in life, it's, um, it's, uh, it definitely plays with your emotions. There were less than a dozen of you, all told, that I would imagine, none of which had any professional firefighting experience, that regardless with some of the most basic of tools, uh, you know, things like rakes and wet blankets and uh, a little bit of water out of a swimming pool, were able to save the property. What made you decide to stay and battle it? Had you waited too long where it was no longer a choice or was a conscious decision to say, here, we're going to drive the uh, the firestorm out if we have to? Greg, I, one thing I know about fire is it's very fickle. Um, you know, we've all watched those shows on television where there's the one guy on the roof with a hose and he saves his house in a subdivision. And I was a Boy Scout, I've spent a lot of time in the wilderness. I've been in forest fires before. I'm not a professional, but I do know that fire is very fickle, and there is a science around it. We had done a lot of preliminary clearing on the property because I knew it wasn't if this would happen. It was just when this would happen. So I had done a lot of thinning of the forest um, over the years in preparation for an event like this. So I thought if it did happen, we had a pretty good chance of defending ourselves. Um, we all looked at each other, there were nine of us, uh, when we saw a fireball coming up the mountain, um, uh, we all looked at each other and we said, hey, we're going to, we're going to, this is two neighbors, a couple of his employees and um, my employees, and we just said, hey, we're going to uh, build a ring around a perimeter and we're going to, we're going to defend it. And we didn't, I didn't think feel so life-threatened because we had a big swimming pool in the middle of the property and I knew that we could all climb in that pool if it came to that. Uh, and there was not a house next to the pool or big trees that were combustible. So uh, I wasn't fearful for my life. Certainly, I didn't want to put any employees in harm's way. And I told everybody, you know, if you ever, during the course of this, it's too much for you, you want to sit it out, you know, please do. And over the course of the night, two of the people, you know, they had enough and just went down by the pool. And um, But it, it, it was something, it was calculated decision. We thought we had a good chance. We did. Uh, everybody, we almost didn't have to talk for 10 hours. People were just, it, it brought out the best of people. Uh, and I do like things like that. Um, and everybody just went to work, and we went from one end of the property to the other. It was three properties we were defending, back and forth. Pro fire came up on every side. There were many times in the night where I thought, okay, is this the punch that takes us out? All it took was a wind shift one way or the other. Um, but by the time the morning came, we had done a good job, but we never stopped. It was fire literally if you came up you'd see it burnt to every single corner of the three properties we defended wow how big yeah. of a piece of property just to put this into perspective for listeners how how, how much land were you having what, what what do the fire lines look like in terms of how you had to stake out your defense around the triple s yeah well the first thing we had we had cleared brush in the forest meaning we took out a lot of the underbrush and that's one of the big reasons by the way this fire happened um, is nobody clears out their underbrush anymore, and there's reasons for that I want to get into. But we had done that, and then um, one of my neighbors, he is a volunteer fireman, and he's a very smart guy. Uh, and so he hopped on his skid steer, it's a tractor, and the first thing he did was go around and, you know, 
dig a perimeter, if you will. Um, the property that we're talking about, if you add them all together, it's probably about 30 acres. It's basically a number of, it's basically three contiguous properties. Triple S is in the middle of it. Uh, Triple S was, used to own all these properties. Triple S is the core ranch, and these are family members that lived on the ranch and now live in subdivided land around the ranch. So the first thing we did was dig a perimeter. Um, and then we waited for the fire to come. And, you know, there were 100-foot flames all around us throughout the course of the night. And we're watching houses up on the ridge literally explode. You know, propane tanks go up, cars explode, trees explode. The sound was pretty amazing. And the property came up from Tubbs Lane. It just came right up the hill and um, came to one side of the property. And, you know, we worked on that for two hours. And then it went off in another direction and came to another side of the property. And we worked on that for number hours and you know then it came another direction another direction another direction and you know what's amazing is you know we're again to, to go back to the fickleness of fire is we had fought everything all night kind of at the perimeters and the very first spot that we had put out early in the evening i remember we were way at the other end of the properties and um, i was driving back to get a tool or something because i was racing around on my truck checking on everybody that was holding the lines and uh, i saw a new building that was on fire that we had that out much earlier in the evening and then so we raced back and put that on a fire and then another one so it just never stopped it was about 36 acres nine of us uh tractors we did the end halfway through the night um we had killed all the water we could by gravity we had water tanks and using hoses off the tanks but by then of course we had no electricity so there was no pumps and um we rigged up a water truck my neighbor did and we got a pump from another neighbor and we started draining a hot tub in a swimming pool. So we effectively had our own fire truck. Al fire came once or twice in the evening, but there really wasn't much they could do. They were more in evacuation mode. And um, we were able to, to send it off. Was there ever a time in all this process that went on, as you said, the, the course of, what, 10 hours that you stayed and fought? Was there ever a time when you thought to yourself, Derek, what are you doing? No, you know, adrenaline is a really powerful thing, right? Um, I never throughout the course of the evening felt um, fearful for myself and actually not for anybody else either. I mean, it was quite calculated. And again, fire is fickle. There might've been one time in the evening where it was literally a hundred foot fireball coming down the hill. that couldn't have been, you know, more than maybe a hundred yards away. And I thought that might be the punch that takes us out, but it would be a building. Um, and these are historic buildings. It's one of the oldest ranches in Napa. Um, and I've invested five years of my life restoring it. And, you know, sometimes you just have to fight for things you really believe in. And um, that was a good thing that we did, because I think had we not done that, I don't think that uh, any of the things that we fought for would have survived. Certainly the rest of the road, there's nothing. You did, of course, have a contingency plan, I understand, and that was that if everything literally uh, got beyond your control, you guys were all going to collectively dive into the swimming pool and literally ride it out. Is exactly correct. And, you know, had we not had that, I would have not put, um, well, certainly others in harm's way. I might have put myself in harm's way, but I would have not done that with other people. Um, but again, swimming pools are excellent defenses as long as there's not combustible material around them. Uh, and we have a very large field of almost 12 acres around the pool. There's some walnut trees, but we had cleared all the brush and the grass was very, very low. So, me, the probability of um, being in harm's way given that was, was low. So that is one of the reasons we all decided we would do what we did. So we were fortunate to have that defense. 
a lot of us, Derek, in this part of the Bay Area um, have not ventured up there. We know what we know from secondhand reports, certainly from what we've seen uh, on the Internet and in television, but uh, probably a very small percentage of Bay Areans have actually firsthand been through there yet to see the totality of the devastation. Can, can you give us a sense just from your perspective how bad is it? And, and we've heard some reports, and I think a lot of this has come primarily from um, news media out of town that c- kind of has characterized this picture that, well, the homes that were lost, these are all wealthy people. They're in the Napa Valley. They're in areas that are, you know, wine country. And, and uh, so these are all rich, wealthy families that at the end of the day will take the insurance check and rebuild. Comment to both of those two questions, if you would, please. Well, I haven't seen everything, of course, because many roads are still closed and um, it's limited where you can go. But I can just tell you on the road that uh, we are located on, which is Mountain Home Ranch Road, with a very hard hit area, kind of like Coffee Park or other areas. There are 25 houses on the road um, that were destroyed, two resorts, and there's eight that survived. So that kind of gives you the math. Um, I think the thing that is the hardest to get your head around is I have been in floods before in my personal residence. I've been in earthquakes before in a personal residence. There's always something left, right? There's damage and it's, um, you know, things you have to repair and it costs money and it's still cakewalk. But this fire was so hot that when you go to a house or a resort or whatever, there's nothing, nothing, literally nothing except for metal. I mean, you could clean up a whole building with one dumpster because all there is is metal. And in fact, uh, one of the resorts here, Mountain Home Ranch, we were down after the fire looking at it, and there was just molten aluminum everywhere. And I guess it was an engine block to a gator or something. And I had to look up, you know, what the temperature was for that. It's 1,100 degrees. Um, I think what's hard for me to get my head around is if you come back to your house, there's nothing. There isn't a picture. There isn't a tax receipt. A safe wouldn't even make it through that. Um, and, you know, I'm fortunate that I do not have to come back to that, but I can't imagine people that do have to come back to that. Now, that's to, to lose everything. I, I don't know what it's like because I will not experience that personally, but sitting and looking at all, it just brings tears to my eyes. And, you know, our street is, I'd say, 80%, you know, working class people that have been here for a long time. And, yeah, we have our, you know, 20% that maybe are very wealthy. But my suspicion is the 80-20 rule, like everything in life. And, um, you know, I think people are probably going to go through a lot of hardship. Some people will be insured correctly. Others won't. Uh, um, but it's – it's to go to zero, I I, I – I don't know. It's just it's hard for me to even fathom what that must be like. And, you know, at the end of the day, you say, well, the most important thing is you get out with your life intact. The families are still together, and that's all well and good and true. But as you point out, Derek, there's that sudden disconnect now. Every bit of your history uh, is lost. The family photographs are lost. The family heirlooms are lost. They may be things that have largely have no um, actual retail value to them, but they have immeasurable sentimental value. I mean, I I thought through this and watching some of the the pictures unfold myself, I thought, you know, if it ever happened to me, I'd get through it and I'd be okay and life goes on. 
But then I think about, gee, there's all these memories of things that are attached to uh, photographs of family and the, the rocking chair that sits in my living room that my great-grandmother rocked my grandmother in and then my grandmother, my father, and my mother, me. And I think to myself, you know, it's rickety, it's old. It probably wouldn't get you 25 bucks at a flea market, but there's so much family history in there, and you'd be heartbroken to lose things like that. Yeah, I mean, for me, one of the reasons that I defended what I did is I renovate out of a historic salvage and I collect all over the world. And, you know, these are beautiful handmade things that you can't buy at Walmart and so they are irreplaceable and that is one of the reasons that you know an insurance claim isn't going to cover that but you know it's interesting there's two two people I know just on this road who literally kept all their money in cash I mean for whatever reason that's just the way they ran their life one is a Hispanic gentleman lovely guy and he's lost everything and his life savings another one he's a, a Russian uh, an older Russian gentleman he lives uh, with the family and you know that's just the way he does things right and um, we've all tried to help him out because again they don't even have a bank account so you know we forget everybody lives different ways people don't live just one way and, and you know, when the tide goes out you kind of see what's at the bottom of the ocean and um, you know there's a lot of people that are going to be affected a lot of different ways Derek I would take it that you're a California native no I'm not I'm actually from New York oh. I grew up outside Okay, well, we'll forgive you for that. Well, then then uh, I'll, I'll still make the remark that I was going to make, and that is this, that, that California natives uh, have a history of resiliency. You pointed earlier to some of your own experiences in getting things through uh, through things like earthquakes. And, and, you know, talk to any Bay Area native or California native, and they will tell you about the 56 quake and the 71 quake and the 89 earthquake, and they'll tell you about the Oakland-Berkeley Hills fire. Um, and yet, even down through history, if you go back to my grandmother's generation, uh, the great earthquake and fire of 1906, and yet we stay, we rebuild, life goes on. We are very resilient. We're pioneers, and we're resilient. As you look at the landscape there, and as you mentioned, you haven't been able to see everything because so much of it is still closed, but f- from your vista, um, clearly Californians are going to rebuild and the day will come that Sonoma and Napa, like the Phoenix, will rise again. The question I pose to you is, in, in looking at the scene that you do have access to, how long do you feel it's going to be before we're fully back on our feet again and we can see a sense of total normalcy, or normalcy rather, return to that region? Well, I think one thing that's interesting is, again, watching the fire that night go all around us, watching hillsides where flames were literally 100 feet high. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. And the, the flames weren't yellow, they were red. That's how hot it was. And I would look at these hillsides. Of course, it's completely dark. And I'm thinking, when the sun rises tomorrow, there can't possibly be a tree anywhere. And shockingly, I look at those hillsides, and only 50% of the trees are burnt. And I mean, you know, inter, interspersed. So I think one thing is the vegetation, even though maybe it doesn't look so great now, you know, Life is very resilient, as you talked about, natural life as well as human life. And I think the landscape will heal quick, quick, quicker than we all think. And personally, as you pointed out, um, you know, life is full of travails and people, really the best of people come out the worst of times. And, you know, fire is a cleansing mechanism for nature. Uh, I suppose in this case, it's, you know, goes over to man. And, and I think that the biggest thing that I worry about is how much government will interfere with all of this. Meaning, I think people are resilient, of course, and I just hope that government doesn't slow people down too much. I think that is where the bottleneck will come. If anything, we need to expedite 
to uh, to help do all that we can to get your part of the state back on its feet again. It is, and I think we all know this, if we don't, shame on us. The the Napa, the greater Napa-Sonoma region it is vital to not only the economic success of Northern California, but the totality of our state. We tend to be kind of Silicon Valley-centric, and we think that if it doesn't come out of Cupertino or Sunnyvale or San Jose or Santa Clara, it can't be of any good. Don't kid yourself about the role that the the wine industry and tourism in that part of the state plays to the overall economic health for all of us, not just in the state of California, but the country for that matter. I mean, we're competitive with, with wines out of places like Bordeaux, France, and Italy. So it's critical, I think, that we be supportive of local businesses. And, uh, you know, a lot of folks in the area are saying, hey, fire has come and gone. We're open for business again. So when you get a chance, plan a weekend to go up into the Napa Valley. Not everything has been destroyed. A lot has been destroyed, but not everything. And we need to be supportive of local business owners uh, like Derek Webb as well and uh, stand all that we can uh, with you. Derek, I know that you've been through a unbelievably trying and difficult experience, and your nerves are probably going to be rattled for quite some time to come. But we sure do appreciate you um, taking some time to share your story with us today. And uh, we wish you and your neighbors uh, much continued uh, health and success. And uh, again, I just urge everybody here in the in the, in the immediate Bay Area um, to, uh, to be supportive in every way for our neighbors to the north of us. Derek Webb, thank you so much for your time today. Great. Thank you very much. There is Derek Webb, brave owner of the Triple S Ranch in Napa, through their valiant efforts. I mean, less than a dozen people fought this fire, 30 acres, and were able to protect the property and uh, the employees and the lives. And that's, uh, that's an encouraging story. All right, we're going to take a time out and get you updated on some traffic here. Right now, we're back over to the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael Bennett's got that update. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Many of you out there perhaps are uh, part-time gardeners or like to, uh, what's the word, not tweak? I'm trying to think, what is, it, what is the proper, appropriate term here, Jarrell? You, you, you love to meddle around in the garden. <laughs> uh, your spouse might say occasionally killing plants. Uh, certainly that's, uh, that's one of my uh, badges that I wear none too proudly. But uh, you know, then again, you might have some luck and success once in a while. You certainly know that there are times and seasons when older plants, more mature plants, uh, begin facing some growth challenges. Uh, seemingly, no matter how much water you feed them or how oftentimes you uh, turn them to make sure they're facing the light, uh, their leaves begin to get yellowed. Uh, the edges perhaps begin to, to grow brown. There is a lot less new growth, and the older growth, quite frankly, is looking dingy, tired, and worn out. So what do you do? Is there a way in which you can revitalize and bring new life to that plant and hope that it will um, somehow will carry on further? Well, one of the big methods is plants like that oftentimes become uh, root-bound, particularly when they're potted plants. And so it requires going in, uh, removing the potting uh, around them, uh, trimming the root, which sometimes can be a painful process, and then, of course, replanting that plant in new soil, fresh fertilizer, lots of water, lots of sunlight, and the vast majority of times, in fact, that replanting process, as time-consuming and perhaps painful as it might be in shock to the plant initially so, can be the long-term solution 
to giving that plant a new lease on life. Let's think of that same analogy when it comes to churches and church planting. Does it sound familiar, a congregation that's been around for many, many years, many generations, and at the edges is starting to look sort of drab and dreary and tired? There is no new growth, and so oftentimes the decision comes, gee, is it time to just put that plant out of its, or that church, out of its misery, or are there things that we can do to replant that church in a similar fashion the way we do a replanting of a plant, a house plant, to give it a new lease on life? Well, my next guest tonight, I think, would suggest the answer is absolutely so. He is a gardener of sorts, a missionary, uh, author, and um, professor at uh, Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama. He spent uh, years in Bangkok, Thailand, and um, works as a, a church an advisor in many respects, helping churches discover how a dying congregation can grow once again. The book is called Replant, How a Dying Church Can Grow Again. Dr. Mark Devine, great to have you on the program tonight. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. This is a, this is a painful process, isn't it? Uh, number one, I think oftentimes painful for congregations to admit uh, that they are in fact uh, facing a very uncertain future it really can be and um, uh, I really didn't set out to become sort of a you know a church uh, consultant or a fixer but uh, once I became a professor and could no longer serve as a full-time pastor I found myself really not knowing what to do with myself and so I ended up becoming uh, an in uh, a serial interim pastor for churches that are without a pastor and then after the first couple of those, I really found myself in a new, uh, exciting ministry uh, with a growing mission field because 80% of churches in North America are declining. And I really found myself um, really looking at these churches very differently than it is just a way station for the next pastor, but trying to think, well, wait a minute, this church has been declining for so long, they've had one pastor after another, is there something I can do in my unique position, since I don't want to stay permanently, that might help this congregation grow again? And I haven't always been successful, but it's really been exciting uh, to try to help in these ways. You speak throughout the book of your experiences, specifically at um, Calvary Baptist Church. Let's talk a bit about that. Uh, this is a church that you describe as having been in its third decade of decline, and, and certainly one of the big indicators that there was lots of trouble afoot. It went through the totality of eight pastors, four permanent, four interim, in just 10 years. That, that's, what, like a year and a half or so per pastor? That certainly doesn't bode well in terms of the healthiness of that church or, uh, the very least, the stick to uh, of those called to lead. I'm told that the average pastorate now, tenure of a, of a pastor in churches today in North America, hovers around two years. That's hard to believe, but um, it really is an indication of sort of the the, the pathology, the lack of vision, uh, and the difficulties. And what happens oftentimes in these churches is that after the first two or three pastors uh, stay a very short time and leave, um, the, the congregation itself lapses into a pattern of behavior that prevents it from being led. Inevitably, uh, highly motivated laypersons, often very well-meaning, begin to occupy 
leadership turf that really belongs to a pastor, and these congregations become, without even realizing it, virtually unleadable. And so for all the good intentions that many might have and the pockets of ministry that often exist in these churches, they're really, they've rendered themselves uh, resistant to any real visionary, uh, strong pastoral leadership. And usually until that uh, is changed, it usually is. Most of these churches never come back. Well, in, in, in all fairness, uh Dr. Devine, you, you speak in the book of, of the fact that there had been individuals that were in these positions, and I would imagine to the greatest degree, many of them um, out of necessity. When we look at that high degree of turnover, I mean, suddenly from transitioning from one pastor to another, there are areas of need and care within uh, the greater life and body of the church and pastoral ministry that need time and need attention. And so uh, it would seem like a lot of these folks might have stepped into those positions, uh, probably of, of good heart and will. But then uh, what are you suggesting? Something happens along the way where they they kind of uh, dig their heels in, and suddenly it, it moves from here's a, a deacon so-and-so or sister such-and-such, so God bless her is willing to step in while we're in the middle of a, a crisis here. Pastor's left. We've got an intern pastor who's trying to get the lay of the land, and so they're willing to come in and help out. And then what? It turns into uh, suddenly from um, good-hearted ministry to taking advantage of personal perks and privileges? A lot of the decisions that a pastor might make or lead the congregation to make end up being made by powerful lay people, and they get used to doing that, and they like to do it. And once a congregation sees pastors come and go quickly a few times, they, they are slow to treat the next pastor as though he will be around for, for very long, and therefore his ability to gain their trust and lead is uh, is greatly diminished. And then if a pastor comes in who's bound and determined to leave, then he faces resistance with entrenched sort of turf, uh, uh, turf battles where various people have staked out some turf that uh, they see as theirs and they're protective of it, but as long as the pastor can't lead, uh, you know, if he, if he can't have influence on that turf, then he really can't lead the congregation, and these pastors eventually give up and, and they go. If you've just joined the conversation, we're, we're talking about a lot of the principles that gardeners use in bringing new life to a dying plant by replanting it. We're all familiar with the concept of church planting. What about the concept of church replanting? Some lessons on how a dying church can grow again. Dr. Mark Devine with us tonight. Maybe your church is going through some of this. Maybe you have individuals in your church that, as Dr. Devine suggests, have stepped in to help out during difficult times and suddenly now are intentionally or otherwise engaged in making decisions and taking on areas of authority, quite frankly, biblically, belong to the pastor, but out of emergency or short-term necessity, they have taken. And suddenly now it's gone from, let me step in to help out, to essentially a usurping of position, authority, and spiritual responsibility that ultimately does not bode well for the life of that church. If you're in that kind of circumstance, you may want to just simply eavesdrop on our conversation. Maybe you want to dive a little bit deeper, and uh, I can understand not wanting to get out on the radio and uh, reveal your name or the church that you're involved with, but time out. 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.